SSM Sports MedCast. This is Dr. Chris Bigazinski of Maine Medical Partners. We continue our conversation with Dr. Cindy Chang on the topic of sleep medicine, beginning with how exercise affects sleep. So, so far we've discussed how sleep impacts athletic performance, but how does exercise have an impact on sleep? For example, there's an idea out there that one shouldn't exercise within an hour or two of planning to go to bed due to the activating effects on exercise. Is there any truth to these claims? It's really very interesting. And and I was actually uh, redoing some of our paperwork for our athletes who have concussions. And uh, one of the things that we talk about is like, don't exercise too late, don't exercise too late. Well, we do know that actually exercise enhances sleep. So we, there have been some studies that shown that adolescent athletes, so athletes in high school who actually train more, and I, I'm trying to remember, so training almost 20 hours a week, you know, exercising uh, versus people who don't get as much exercise, more like five hours a week, actually have better sleep patterns and better sleep quality. You think about that and you go, okay, well, does it make you more tired? Does it help with your uh, circadian rhythms? Not sure why that happens, but um, the interesting thing then is when you get this exercise in. You think about the school day, you think about the athletic day, et cetera. So when is, when is too late to exercise? So there's one good study, and I want to let people know that AMSSM is actually, um, we're writing a uh, position statement on psychological issues in um, our athletes, and one of our sections is about sleep and how sleep can affect mental health. So we always talk about don't exercise in the evening or how late is too late to exercise. But what two studies shown was that if you exercise, and one study was two hours before bedtime and one study was four hours before bedtime, okay, it was not shown to be associated with worse sleep patterns. So at least there haven't been a lot of studies out there, but at least one of them shown that if you try to exercise uh, in the evening, but you try to avoid at least two hours before bedtime, it will not impact your sleep. So at least we've got that two hour window. Now, I don't know about the one hour window, and, and, but if it comes, but, but this is what I'll tell patients, try. If you haven't gotten in your 30 minutes of exercise and your 45 minutes of exercise or however your goal is, and it is an hour before bed or 90 minutes before bedtime, um, and it's try it out on a weekend. You know, where you don't necessarily have to get up that early and see if it impairs your sleep. Everyone's different. Everyone's individualized. And I would never say if someone's desperate to get their steps in or get their exercise in because it's part of their exercise program, but they're finding that it got pushed to later in the evening, I would say, well, try it out and see. And if it overstimulates you and you feel like you can't fall asleep at your normal time, then it's, then it's too late for you. I think that's great advice. The last thing we want to be doing is putting up barriers for uh, exercise uh, for our patients, which is already such a challenge. Uh, let's talk a little bit about wearable technology. So wearable technology has become very in vogue recently, and monitoring of both amateur and professional athletes has increased even to the point that it's in some professional athlete contracts to wear wearable technologies to monitor things like sleep duration and quality. What does some of the early data tell us about the utility of these technologies? First of all, there's an incredible amount of data points that come out of this wearable technology. And one thing... You know, my daughter actually did her thesis uh, on this 
uh, her college thesis on wearable technology in a certain professional football league. And the amount of data points that she was looking at was incredible. So I would say that, that uh, number one, you've got all these data points and you've got to decide which ones of these you're going to utilize when you're evaluating your athletes. One of the things I think that is benefiting um, athletes the most and teams the most is to be able to look and see about, like I had mentioned earlier, is the athlete getting the quality and quantity of sleep that they should be getting, uh, that we think they should be getting. And it, there's, it's a little bit of an invasion of privacy, but it's in their contracts, right? And so it's just a way for teams to monitor exactly what the athletes are doing in their, quote, free time end of quote, you know, it's supposed to be their own time away from the practice field, et cetera. But um, when you're under a large contract, I feel that the teams want to keep their uh, athletes, their well-being is first, is, is paramount in terms of athletic performance. So I think that's one way it's being used. Certainly the wearable, the wearable devices can look at, like I said, looking at sleep uh, habits over time. And I think with all that data, looking at the data points, looking at over time is probably a lot more effective than looking at, at every, every night. And being able to make healthy adjustments that way, I think, is, is a little bit more in, important. Um, if someone's got a lot of um, motion at night, if, if that data is able to show uh, the amount of motion, then it may be representative of whether or not they've got a sleep disorder where maybe restless legs or even sleep apnea. And that may trigger that ability then to refer that patient for more, uh, that athlete for more uh, specific studies, for example, a sleep study, where then they can uh, take a look and see if, if, if the restorative sleep cycle is, is being disrupted. And, and, and that could potentially lead to more injuries, for example. And so sleep studies having wearable data can can actually alert athletes to the fact that there may be something else going on, a more significant sleep disorder that is causing them to not feel rested when they wake up, for example. And we do know some studies that show that some of our athletes, for example, our football players and maybe some of our rugby players, example, who are more at risk for obstructive sleep apnea, and they can have definitely more changes then with um, their metabolic function as well. So we need to take a look at that, and that can give us some some really good uh, data. That's great. What can you tell us about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is daytime napping? Is this something that can help athletes recover? I think it can. The challenge of daytime napping is the fact that if you nap too long, it will push your sleep later because you won't feel tired and I, I like to tell um, you know my, my athletes that when we talk about napping it's like if you eat a snack before dinner if you eat a snack before dinner then you're not going to be hungry at dinner time you know and you won't have your usual appetite for example so it's the same thing with napping if you nap too close to nighttime sleep or too long it's going to push your uh, sleep time back. And that will definitely impair the quality, the quantity of sleep that you're going to have before you have to rise the next morning. So what I like to tell um, 
uh, my patients is that if they nap, I don't want them napping longer than 30 to 60 minutes. And then uh, I want them to set an alarm. I would say that having a nap can certainly be restorative. And depending on how the length of the nap, it'll determine what stage of sleep you actually can fall into. Uh, you know, we talk about, we haven't really talked about it this much about sleep cycles. And we talk about, you know, we've talked about REM sleep and we've talked about the deep sleep and the, uh, the patterns that we can see on um, EEGs. But certainly if we can get into, you know, one phase, like a sleep stage. So a sleep stage is about 90 minutes. So if we're only sleeping about 30 minutes, then we're probably only going to get into the first couple stages. But that's okay. You know, that even light sleep can help us with a little bit of restoration, can make us feel refreshed so that we can kind of do that homework and power through that homework, um, etc. But without disrupting our nighttime sleep time. That's great. I think the... Uh that speaks a little bit to the idea of sleep inertia in the sense that if you sleep longer than 60 minutes, in other words, if you take a nap for two hours, people oftentimes wake up feeling uh, somewhat groggy and then it really throws off your sleep later in the evening. So it sounds like the 30 to 60 minute window is really ideal. I also heard a really uh, great speaker uh, who came up with this concept called the Nappuccino where he would take a shot of espresso right before taking a nap and then he'd lay down and then it would take about 30 minutes for the caffeine to start working in his body so he'd you know have a shot of espresso lay down for about 15 or 30 minutes take a nap and then by the time he woke up he got a little extra boost from the caffeine and then he would go out and do his workout which i thought was a really novel way of getting a kind of a double boost from the nap and from a little caffeine in the afternoon yes and yes that's exactly right and that is something that the caffeine boost that's exactly right that is discussed uh among uh athletes and lay people alike so i'm glad you (laughs) yeah we all like our caffeine uh you also work with the sports concussion program at ucsf how does sleep impact recovery from concussions and vice versa how can a concussion impact sleep oh goodness so if anything if anything and, and we have so many kids and adults coming in who have had um, a mild traumatic brain injury. And one of the things that I talk about uh, with them, especially if it's been more than one concussion and the concussions have presented differently, is that we just talk about their brain and how the brain controls everything. Uh, One of the things that I have found really helpful um, in my patient population is that we talk about how the brain regulates sleep as well. And it helps them at least try to change behavior. We know that some of our concussions that come in have no impairment on sleep at all, and some of them have impairment on sleep. They have an impairment in sleep, they can't fall asleep, or they wake up in the middle of the night. Likely their quality is, it can be affected. Uh, oftentimes it's hard to, to measure that. And, and I talk to them about how the brain controls sleep. And the anatomy of sleep, it, it, it's just very, very important. And so we, I, we talked earlier about how melatonin, right? So melatonin is secreted by what? It's secreted by a gland that's in our brain. And I, I talked about how this could be disrupted as well as other types of parts of the brain that actually are able to recognize uh, when dusk happens, you know, when light exposure decreases. There's all kinds of rises and falls of certain amounts of 
uh, hormones in our brain that help with our sleep. But what I start with them right away is talking about, about what they can do, the things that they can do to try to start helping them with their sleep recovery from the concussion. And so right away, I start with sleep hygiene. And it may or may not help at this level of their concussion at the, when they present, but certainly it's gonna help once they recover with changing patterns so that they end up having great sleep patterns after they recover from their concussion. So it is variable. I guess my point is when I see an athlete with a concussion, it's variable in terms of how much their sleep is affected by their concussion. And also keep in mind, Chris, that if they're in high school or they're in college and they're, now they're anxious about this concussion impairing their ability to be successful in school or they're losing their spot on the team, as you know, anxiety, stress, that is a huge reason why people can't fall asleep, right? They are they are just wound up because they're worried. They're worried about concussion keep them off the field, or now they've got to delay their math exam. And so that can weigh on them as well. So there's multiple reasons why sleep may be impaired, but again, one of the things that we try to do is we try to start teaching them right away the things that they can do, what's under their control, so that they can try to start resuming a normal sleep pattern. And you say, you will get better. This will improve. And you may need to help them a little bit uh, with some um, sleep aids like melatonin, a small dose, um, and some of the other things we talked about, like a high-protein diet, uh, again, which hasn't been uh, shown definitively to help. Uh, but some of those things that they can try, a quiet environment, all those types of things, which may be hard on college campus, certainly, but some of those things can help them get on their way to recovery. Cindy, before we go, can you give us a brief overview on some of the future avenues of research for sleep and sports performance? I think you're going to see more and more wearable devices. Now, again, it's definitely going to help with sleep tracking. The question is, will people be, will they be compliant with its use? And will there be enough people uh, available to help evaluate the data and be able to determine the impact of the data, if that makes sense. You know, the reliability, the validity of the data. So I do think we have to keep uh, our eye on this wearable technology, uh, but also we have to respect a little bit of the independence of our patients and our athletes. So I'll kind of keep that in mind. Um, I think that's one of the things. I think we're going to get more and more data out about academic performance. I, I do think there are some laws that are now being passed about school days, starting school days later for those teens who we know circadian rhythm and everything, they don't like to wake up early. Their clock has them enjoying a later wake up time. And so are they performing at their best? Are we doing them a disservice when the school day is starting at 7.30 in the morning. And so that's a wonderful, uh, exciting avenue to look at, but it's also where we start to see public policy and politics enter into decision-making. It's not always gonna be what's best for our patients and for our athletes, because there's all these other politics in mind, you know, with the school administration and the teacher 
you know, the teachers and, and, and the parents' work schedules. The parents have to be at work at 7.30 or 8. How are they going to get their kids to school if their kids are starting at 9 a.m., for example? So, I, you know, more studies looking at that I think are going to be really helpful. The more that we can show that there is the more data that we have tying injury risk to lack of sleep, poor quality and quantity, I think will help us in terms of emphasizing, emphasizing how important sleep is to our athletes. However, no one ever thinks they're going to get injured. So rather than relying on this data as well, we have to keep looking at performance data. We have to keep showing and saying to our athletes, listen, if you don't get enough sleep, you are not going to perform as well. You will not be able to hit the tennis ball as hard. You will miss more free throws. Your sprinting speed will decrease. Your reaction time will decrease. And that's going to impair your batting speed. Your reaction time is going to impair a lot of things. And so, therefore, we need to keep having these studies out there to show them, show our athletes and our patients that sleep really does matter. And then, you know, more and more studies are going to be done on, it's, it's fascinating. There's been a great deal because of the gambling. You mentioned that, Chris, you know, betting on teams that are flying from East Coast to West Coast versus West Coast to East Coast. Because of that overlay there, more and more interest is being put on, boy, these time zones. And now we've got teams that are traveling to London, right? We're, we're trying to open the NFL is trying to open up markets in Europe as well as China so think about that time zone change and there's money involved because if you want to move three time zones that's moving an hour a day of your sleep okay well that's that's pretty doable but if we're gonna go five time zones 12 time zones think about when does a team need to fly out there when do we need to start changing their sleep patterns? And that can impair the competition the week before. So it is going to impact a great deal of factors besides just that athlete's sleep schedule and the time of the game. It's going to impair all kind, impact all kinds of other things that are going on, at, at, including family time, right? And, you know, when dad's asleep and, and, or mom's asleep, because she's got a big event that's going to be happening five hours away, well then, what's going to happen to dinner time? You know, all those types of things at uh, with the family. So I think this is all very fascinating. I think it's emerging. I think more and more people are looking at sleep, and um, and I, I want you guys to keep an eye out for our position statement, which hopefully will be coming out soon. Because again, that and emotional health. And, and mental health disorders are going to be paramount when it comes to sleep as well. So tons, tons of stuff, Chris. I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you. I'll definitely be on the lookout for the uh, position statement. And uh, Dr. Cindy Chang, I'd like to thank you for your time. This has been a very informative conversation. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And uh, again, thank you for your expertise. Thank you, Chris. And um it's, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for the AMSSM podcast. Again, the viewpoints of the participants are their own and do not reflect the viewpoints of University of California, San Francisco, Maine Medical Partners, or the AMSSM. <laughs>